Hello and welcome to the second episode of the EVs and Beyond podcast. I'm your host, Richard Edwards. We have a great and timely interview this week. With the closure of the TY Point aluminium smelter, Southlander Nigel Broomhall is calling on the government to lure Elon Musk here to build a gigafactory to take its place. We'll talk to him later, but before that, the news. The Electric Vehicle Program Leadership Group of industry representatives set up in 2016 to advise the government on EVs is no more. To quote, it had run its course, group member and Drive Electric Chairman Mark Gilbert says, adding the decision to disband came from the members themselves, along with the Ministry of Transport's blessing. Gilbert says the group's focus was too narrow and the situation has changed. The group was set up under the national government to advise on barriers to EV uptake and work towards the goal of 64,000 EVs on New Zealand roads by the end of 2021. That target now looks unlikely, and the government's shelving of the clean car plan involving emission standards and a fee-bait scheme means any further moves on EVs are not expected until after the September general election. Audi New Zealand and ABB New Zealand have nearly completed installing AC and DC charging points in Audi-authorised dealerships nationwide under a partnership. The rollout includes the 175kW ABB Terra HP high-power charger live at Archibald's Motors in Christchurch next month. That can charge an Audi e-tron up to 80% in less than 40 minutes. Audi's nine other dealerships have Terra 54 50 kilowatt DC chargers that can provide a full 400 kilometer charge in two hours. Gilcherp Audi, Ebit Audi, and Farmer Audi will also get 175 kilowatt DC chargers. Right, so our guest today is Nigel Broomhall. Now, if you haven't heard of Nigel already, he is a fairly big name internationally, I guess, in the charging scene, but he's based out of little old New Zealand with his business Charge Smart. There's a lot of companies out there with the with the charge in the name there these days. And also it's his US offshoot, Invisible Urban. Uh, thanks for joining us, Nigel. I appreciate the, uh, appreciate the time. Now, we're here today to talk about a little bit of a project you've been working on lately, which is this somewhat audacious bid to get Tesla to come down and uh, take over uh, the site uh, currently occupied by the aluminium smelter at TY Point. But first, just tell me a little bit about Charge Smart and Invisible Urban. You've got quite a lot of spread out there in regards to your hardware, particularly in the US. Yeah, so Charge Smart is, uh, I've been, I've, I guess let's start at the beginning. I've been working in EVs now since 2009. So I was back in the day at Meridian where we thought we could artificially stimulate the market. We were a little overconfident, it's fair to say. So we ran a program for a couple of years and then dialed that back. And then I was uh, running another EV charging business after a a guy that you may have heard of called Mark Gilbert called me back into New Zealand when I was doing some global consulting. And then I've built up Charge Smart, which is New Zealand focus. We've got uh, all of the large commercial EV chargers that are across all the accommodation parks or the holiday parks in New Zealand. And then we've got a bunch of hotels that are installing them as well. So we'd have connected to our software platform, we're probably close to 150 EV chargers now. And um, so that's the domestically focused stuff. And then myself and my business partner, Jake Bazant, have uh, started a new company and extended into the US. So we've um, signed up some pretty big contracts over in the US. A big challenge, of course, is um, COVID-19 is not making anything very easy. (laughs) (laughs) And and how many chargers do you have rolled out in the US? I understand you've got quite a lot of the rights to quite a large amount of 
parking, I guess, is probably the best way to look at it. Yeah, so we're focused on parking operators in the US, and we've got a master agreement for 122,290 car parks for the next 10 years. So we have exclusive access to roll EV charges out to those. And the first sort of tranche of hardware within that contract is around just over 3,000 charges. So a lot of those projects, because they're focused on accommodation or high-end developments, they've been pushed out now just the knock-on effect of COVID, but we've got this pipeline of work that um, is ready to go for us. So it's pretty exciting. And you uh, use you develop your own hardware, you use others, what's your... It's a mix. So we've got a, a hero product, which I can come and back and talk to you once we launch that, because we're going to do a, a cool launch for that one. We've got a hero product that we provide for public charging, and then we've got off-the-shelf hardware that's UL compliant, which is a big deal in the US. You have to be UL compliant that will just go into parking buildings. So, yeah, combination and then a software platform that sits over the top that does all the standard stuff around being OCPP for all those tech heads out there, OCPP 1.6 JSON compliant so that we can do all of the fundamentals of uh, charge point operation and mobility service provision. Fantastic. Interesting in the charging space. I mean, what do you think is going to be the more important part that companies will focus on in the future? Is it the hardware or is it the software? Because we're starting to see kind of a divergence of a few platforms operating in New Zealand now. Does it come down to who controls the software, controls the billing? I think, um, you know, convenience plays a big part. So, I think your software is always going to have to evolve. So regardless of what it is that you put out there, I mean, we've all seen those apps that die because they don't maintain them. So you've got to continually invest in that and you've got to stay up with the play. So, you know, not only does it have to function well, but it has to look great and it has to continue to evolve through time if you want to stay relevant. My own personal view in in terms of the number, sheer volume of platforms, you don't want to get past a certain number and that number is probably no more than three because once you do that, then you've just got to have all these different apps. If they're not talking to each other, we're going to have a challenge. And I see we've we've got the ChargeNet app that's been out there very well established. Now we've got OpenLoop coming along. We've also had Charge Fox reach into New Zealand from Australia. Uh, is there any others that I'm missing? I think that's it for now. But I always, I've always find it interesting watching, I'm sure you watch the Tesla Bjorn YouTube channel out of Norway, and he obviously does a little travel. He has to carry a folder <laughs> of fobs and cards now. It's, it's not something you really want to get into for a country like New Zealand, is it? No. So, I mean, the key with any of those platforms that start to get established is we really want them to talk to each other. So I think from, from a convenience perspective, you really want the back ends of those systems to communicate. And, you know, the platform that we use, for example, which is out of the Netherlands, it has open APIs, so it can be connected to other platforms. So there's no reason why, for example, if you've got an accommodation provider with one of our commercial charges, if they wanted to move to a full tariffing platform, they then connect the back end up to, say, ChargeNet, so somebody rocks up with a ChargeNet RFID or accesses the app. So that can be done. And then that's that, I think, if we were going to look at standards, and you don't want to go too deep down that rabbit hole, but one of the standards you'd want to see go into play for anybody building a platform in New Zealand is they have to have the ability to talk to each other. And then it just comes down to commercials, how much each is going to charge each other for that that service but that I would have thought would be a fundamental otherwise you're right we end up with 16 fobs in the back of our pocket and and we never use half of them so yeah it's it's going to get interesting just adds to the complexity which just drives people 
out of the market sometimes, I would have thought. Well, that's right. And in our space, in terms of what we're doing in the US, there's an added complexity to that because you've got parking operators that also have their own software platforms in some instances. A lot don't. Most parking operators in the US, unlike some of the advanced stuff that we see here in Auckland with AT doing license plate recognition and using the AT Park app to pay and things like that, that's still very new in a lot of the US. So... But I certainly see that there is where the market needs to evolve to in terms of parking is I have one application. I use that to pay for my parking. And by the way, it also pays for my EV charging if that's a charged for service. So I think you'll see initially, and we see that this in, in any new technologies, you see a lot of players come in and you have divergence all over the place. And then as the market matures and settles down, the bigger players tend to hoover up all the small ones and, and you get more convergence and you end up with a smaller number. As Pareto principle plays out, 80% of the market wants to use just one or two applications. Mm-hmm. TY point. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm going to play very much devil's advocate here. Putting a Tesla factory at TY point is a terrible idea. Convince me otherwise. I mean, where did the idea come from? Oh, look, um, so I'm a South Islander. I'll, I'll admit that out of the gate. And my concern is for Southland. So the first thing I'll say about TY Point and what's been announced and what we were just talking about before has been updated in terms of the announcement that they're definitely out of here. Yeah, just, just to be clear to people, this is being recorded on uh, Wednesday, the 22nd of July, and uh, this morning Rio Tinto confirmed that, that the TY Point smelter is definitely closing. The, the negotiation period is over, basically. Yeah, which um, I have to admit and say, I I thought part of this was potentially a negotiating phase. Not to say that I don't think the Tesla thing could be done. I definitely do. You know, we we have to be sensitive to the people of Southland. This is a major, a major disruptive occurrence to them. And, and, you know, the media talks about the 1,200 jobs, but we all know if you've got a massive player in a small community, there will be indirectly people associated with that. And then there's indirect businesses that are also not going to receive half the money that they would get because the people spend the money in that economy. So you're going to have a knock-on effect. I think it's going to be more like three to five thousand. So you, you, those businesses that would have received and would have received business from people that worked for TY will now look at their business and maybe downscale it, maybe get rid of more staff. So it is a massive impact for Southland. Why a Tesla factory? That's your question. And why would you do it? Well, I mean, you know, the first thought is that that's in in my wheelhouse in terms of the industry that I play in. So I immediately thought, okay, who, who could be the big players that we could attract to New Zealand? The biggest challenge that we have and I've had people comment about, you know, source of materials and stuff like that. There's a lot of factories around the world that aren't sitting on top of mines. It's a bit different with an electricity generation plant. You tend to build a thermal coal-fired power station on top of a coal vein, but a lot of factories aren't necessarily right next to the materials. So we've got sources of materials we could bring in from Australia. I think the one of the challenging ones would be cobalt, and it comes out of the DRC. So you've got to look at the logistics of that. But I think one of the overwhelming things is the price of electricity and it is a major input cost for any large manufacturing plant particularly highly robotized plants like you're looking at tesla that is one of the most cheapest and 100 renewable prices of electricity you get on the planet so i think we need to put something out there like that to see if we can attract big players i don't think it has to be tesla i knew it would spark i'll be honest and say i knew it would spark attention so the big thing for me is could we get attention to have a look at that and do a deal? 
will it stack up commercially? We'd have to go through all the numbers and have a look at that. And logistics is without is by far and away the major issue. Shipping's actually not as expensive as what people think and getting stuff out of that part of New Zealand. And I was looking at batteries, to be clear, not cars. So a few people have said, yay, Teslas will be cheaper now because they're manufactured in New Zealand. I, I don't think they'd manufacture cars. No, no one builds cars <laughs> next to a surf beach. No. <laughs> and to be fair, for, for automotive historians out there, it has been done in New Zealand. If you go back a while back, Sabaru built uh, cars or had cars assembled down in uh, in uh, Waitara back in the, I think, 70s and 80s. And if I recall, the blank bodies were wheeled between two sheds with the sea air coming in. <laughs> And uh, it did not end well for those cars, uh, if I recall right. <laughs> but but batteries. Now, I'm going to look to a bit of a rumour floating around there at the moment. We've got Tesla Battery Day coming up. One of the rumours from that is that they've bought, they're buying their own mine in Australia. How would that impact your thinking around this? Oh, look. Um, Seeing as basically that factory is already processing Australian raw material. Yeah, look, that would definitely impact this concept. So if they're going to drop, if they bought a mine in Australia, the challenge they will have, and they will always have with Australia or anywhere else, and is that the electricity in Australia is fundamentally dirty. It's just the, the way it's been done. So if you are really heading down this path and your overall driver is sustainability, it is wanting to be renewable, I mean, there's there's no other commercial reason why you'd throw solar panels on the roof of a gigafactory if you weren't trying to be renewable. Because, you know, cost-wise, you've still got a, a reasonably long payback depending on where you are. In this case, you don't have to worry about that at all. You've got a dedicated feed straight from 570 megawatts of 100% renewables. So, and then that's great, but it still comes down to price. I mean, we're, we're talking at TY's cost base, if, if what's been reported is accurate, and I pretty much figure it is, around five cents kilowatt hour, that's three cents US. Now, he's not going to get that in Australia. Australia's got higher prices than us. They have electricity networks that have priced up quite substantially. He's never going to get a price the same. It just comes down to looking at the economics of the factory. How does that stack in terms of all of the costs? I don't intimately know that, but I think we should have a crack at it. And if he has got a mine in Australia... That is nice and close. I mean, we do bring bauxite straight out of Aussie, right? So That's exactly what I'm saying. The supply chain's kind of already there. Yeah, yeah. So I'll be, be in two minds. One is why doesn't he just do it? He's already had a – he's got a history of dealing with Australia because he did the big – the battery bank in Adelaide. So he's got a history of dealing with those guys. He doesn't have a history of dealing with us. And we are a bit different to do business with. I'd argue we're easier, but Australia's probably more like America. It's quite brutal. They're also more known, though, for government subsidies, particularly at a state level, of large projects. It's not something New Zealand's necessarily known for enough. I look to Germany. I think the the bill for Germany to get the mega factory of the line there was something like a hundred million euro in yeah. subsidies straight off the bat. Yeah, although I mean, you're looking at a what six six point nine billion euro investment, eight thousand jobs in a a market that is dominated by car manufacturing. If I was him and I was looking at where I'd put a gigafactory, I'd be really concerned with Germany because Germany's they, they definitely see his technology as a threat. So one of the challenges you've got is is how much is he going to be re- able to retain IP and things within that factory if it's right in the beating heart of, of a country that sees you as a as a strong threat. And, you know, China's a level well above that because replication of your technology is viewed as a compliment. So in comparison to those countries, 
We're a bit of a, a Switzerland, so we're pretty neutral. Nobody's going to go in there and steal your technology. But conversely, you've got to look back at why he's in those places, and that's because you build those vehicles close to the source. They are the two biggest markets for the production or sale or shipment of luxury cars in the world outside of the US. And if you look at the US, California is the biggest market for electric vehicles in the US. He has his vehicle factory in California and his battery factory just over the border in Nevada where they were stubbed up more cash. <laughs> but it's a big sell putting it at the other end of the world really, isn't it? Yeah, I think, again, batteries, not cars. I agree. I mean, if you're looking at where you would put a car manufacturing plant in China, arguably India at some point, I mean, that 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 market is huge for vehicles as well. Um, and then, yeah, Germany makes logical sense. I guess... Um, where it sits geographically and also, you know, they've got a whole lot of skills there. I guess uh, having seen some of the rhetoric and, and particularly uh, with a lot of the uh, European car manufacturers, Tesla's, they're not the biggest fan of Tesla. So, yeah, I, I get why. The $100 million, the $100 million euro the investment, I mean, that should be far outweighed by the amount of return that economy gets out of it. But your main point, which is exactly right, is New Zealand doesn't have a massive history of subsidising big business. And we find it mildly offensive on a New Zealand core perspective, uh, although we do arguably do it with the movie industry. So we do provide incentives to the movie industry. I know last time the NZAS contract came around, we provided an incentive to uh, get it across the line and to stay. Which I can't remember the figure, but it was a heck of a lot per worker. It was it was $30 million. Yeah. So I, I guess that probably created an expectation that that was going to happen again. And maybe politically the group that's in there at the moment doesn't feel the same about that. Yeah, it was $30 million. Bearing in mind, for context, I, I see Shane Jones announced, and we don't want to devolve into politics, but he did announce that he was going to give Southland $50 million. So you look at it and go, well, if that was all it was going to take, what do you do? Yeah, so without a doubt, it is a stretch to go there. I guess my um, key point with it is we need to look at big ideas for how we can replace the jobs that will be lost out of Southland. And in my mind they need to fit a certain criteria and the criteria is they have to be clean tech so they have to be associated with clean tech obviously batteries is but uh, you know hydrogen plant i know somebody's thrown around that concept and some others so it has to align with clean tech it has to create jobs so i have heard commentary about putting in a server farm and using the power from from T, from Manapuri for a server farm. The only challenge I've got with that is there's a whole lot of people involved in the construction phase, and then after that you need a man and a dog, and the dog's job is to stop the man from touching anything. So you know, I worked in IBM when we built a big server farm here in Auckland, and they don't hire a lot of people once they're constructed, so it doesn't sort of tick that, how do you replace all those jobs lost? And then the other challenge is, how do you eat that amount of power I mean, that's, about, that's enough energy to power 776,000 houses. That's a lot of energy. And once it's taken out of Southland, it will never go back. So Transpower's on record saying it's $100 million to upgrade the line and get rid of the constraint to get it out of that part of the world. And then it's about half a, half a billion, sounds like more when you say it like that, but 500 to 600 million to stabilize the grid. Once you've done that, you're never sending it south again. It's always going to go north. So, you know, you rip the heart out of the Southland economy and then you don't replace it with anything else. And I think we need to look at that quite seriously as, as what we can do now. Rather than having to do that investment, why can't we attract? And the other 
logic behind why you would come out and say, well, why can't we do that now? The government of the day actually looked at that part of the world and said, we have this stunning resource. Now let's go find a customer. So they put that power station in there for Camelco. It was, I've had some people say to me, oh, you know, they've been eating money and it's costing us all the X, Y, and Z. No, 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 no. They put it in dedicated for that and found and signed an agreement with Camelco. It was done to stimulate that industry in New Zealand. So they they had that sort of business development perspective back in those days. So this is not an original concept. Why can't we do that now? Now, it could be Tesla and, you know, we can get something in front of Tesla if we want to put together a deal, but it could be something else. I think it has to be clean tech. Otherwise, it's not aligned with with um, New Zealand's brand, but it, uh, it could be something else. Jobs, clean tech. You'd be totally open to pitching this idea to any of the other battery manufacturers if we are talking batteries, so CATL or LG Chem, the, 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 the potential opportunity would be there for all of them? Yeah, totally. I mean, the fundamental principle is how do we take advantage of 1,200 skilled jobs in Southland and a whole lot of clean power? Batteries, some other type of clean tech. We just need to get these ideas and get them in front of the right people. It's not good enough for us to just throw around a bunch of ideas and and then hope that we get the interest of somebody. We actually have to look at it and go, okay, well, what's the best package we could put together and then go and sit in front of them and pitch that to them. So Tesla, had any, have you had any words of acknowledgement from Tesla to this idea or for that matter from the government at perhaps putting something together or is this... Just an idea from yourself at the moment. Uh, the guys in New Zealand, Tesla, are aware of it, so they saw it. I went and had a chat to them, so they're uh, they're still having a look. They're, it's not it's quite a secretive organisation, so you know they they uh, they're aware of what was done. Uh, we've had a lot of New Zealand businesses come out and say we'd like to help. So there's been really good support shown there, but we've had no response from either local or the central government. Flew down there and told them they were going to help them, which is great. It just what does that look like? We all want to see something. I mean, what would the next step be? I mean, could you, you mentioned Shane Jones before, apply for some provincial growth fund funding to put together an actual package to pitch these companies? Or? Yeah, that, that's definitely a possibility. I've had experience with the provincial growth fund in the past and it's it's a process and most of it was focused on infrastructure. And, and to be honest, most of it has been focused in the far north rather than that part of New Zealand. I don't know the appetite. And we're finding at the moment, and I guess it makes sense, that the attention of, of government is probably more focused on the short term. Are we going to be here? And how do we compete for this process we go through every three years? So, um, yeah, I think attention at the moment is a bit of a challenge. Yeah, I kind of feel like as far as political attention goes, it's probably been a terrible time for this oh. announcement to come out. Which I guess probably led to a bit of cynicism out there because you look at it and, and say, oh, it is interesting timing. I mean, uh, once you dig into under the covers, you know, the global price of aluminium has crashed. So it really is ugly times if you're in that that space. It just happens to coincide with, you know, COVID-19 crushing the world along with um, us and a whole lot of other places having elections. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's challenging times for sure. Has Tim Shadbolt weighed in on it? He must have an opinion. <laughs> I think that they've been overwhelmed with a number of ideas. So they did, they did come out publicly and say that. They were hoping, uh, from the commentary I saw last week, they were hoping they could still get a deal across the line. 
And I believe they had a window that they could achieve that. And it was much longer than today. It was, um, I think it was several months, but it looks like that's been firmly closed now. So um, so they'll have to look at alternatives now. They, they don't, don't have a choice. Total different thinking. But my theory's kind of always been that if we were going to ask Elon for something, so to speak, it would be what South Australia got. And I've always theorized that a, a battery pack, a battery installation somewhere to get wean us off Huntley would be a really appealing thing as someone with a, obviously quite a bit of network experience. What's your take on, um, on, on that possibility? We've turned this into an electricity podcast, haven't we? And which is, you know, it's still related. Yeah, what we'll find, so Winston Peters, again, don't want to go into too much politics, but Winston came out and he said that Meridian's inability to, con- to do a deal was market failure, which I think is wrong. You know, they, they get asked to reduce the price every time the contract comes up, so there's no real surprise. And if you were the guy on the other side of the table, you'd do the same. If I was Rio Tinto, I'd be doing exactly the exact right. same and thing Exactly right, and so time. would I. So, you know, that is not market failure. If all of that energy is released into the New Zealand environment, so if, it all, if 570 megawatts of 100% renewable baseload electricity is flowed north, and the price does not come down by a chunk, which is the reason why Meridian Contact and a number of others, Genesis, I know were in there, they wipe two and a half billion off their valuation. If that doesn't wash into the New Zealand market and the price goes down, then you can say it's market failure. Everything like battery storage, solar, any generation that was sort of marginally competitive in New Zealand just evaporates for a long time because 500 that's 13% of New Zealand's current demand so if you wipe if you feed that into the New Zealand economy and it's all renewable Huntley and you get it out of there and you get it into the North Island that's the issue though isn't it Huntley just dies away right so you look at it and go, somebody asked me this question, and I don't know the exact number, I should have done the math, but we're probably, we'll be in the 90s for renewable electricity. Because what most people probably don't know is if it doesn't rain in, in Manapuri in seven days, that's officially a drought. And they've got a very tight operating window because that lake's always full of water. So that's why they've been able to feed that aluminium smelter with 100% renewable energy, because they've got so much free fuel, which is water, and that they can just keep pumping it out. You dump that into New Zealand, and anybody who's listening who's got an electric car, and hopefully there's a few of them, I'm one of them, the price will go down. It has to. I think Contact came out and said that they'll have to spill a lot more frequently than what they do, which is a huge impact to their bottom line. But what it reflects is that the price of electricity will come down. Battery storage, that works for intermittent renewables, so wind farms, for taking the energy that they would be dumping at, say, 2 o'clock in the morning. So definitely for stability. And any engineer will tell you that batteries are amazing. They love batteries. We don't have massive day-night separation, so the price between day prices and the night prices in New Zealand. And if you do have those, then batteries make a lot of sense because you can arbitrage it. So you make the money back off the investment in the battery by essentially charging it in the nighttime and then dumping it in the peaks. Batteries still add a lot of value. So people ask the question in the EV space of what do you do with a battery pack out of it and it's going to be mountains of battery packs, rubbish. If we stick those on the sides of our houses and use them as storage, that'll be brilliant for network stability. So they've got a whole lot of long life added benefits. But yeah, we're not like Adelaide was rubbish with their network and um, they, they exacerbated it with a whole bunch of solar into the market as well. I mean, there are a whole lot of 
what you call feeders, in, uh, which is the low-voltage electricity network in Australia that they backfeed during the day because everyone's throwing their solar in at 12 o'clock in the middle of the day. So we don't have that sort of same challenge. So, yeah, you dump all that Manapuri energy back in and a whole lot of things change. And, you know, even though Transparif said it's one year to do the, the line constraint and it's another three years to stabilise the network, it's not a lot of time. Not really. And then there's nothing that gets constructed in New Zealand for about a decade. So wind farms, geothermal, it's just off the table. During the month, how much of the current smelter energy requirement do you think a battery factory would need? Anywhere between 100 and 250 megawatts. So it's a lot. So, you know, if you're talking 776,000 homes for context, that's about 375, 380,000 houses. It's a lot of power. And and obviously there's a high degree of automation within that factory too, which, is, which eats a lot of power. So, you know, they might eat half of it, which then reduces that cost of getting the energy out. We still get a benefit in New Zealand because we still get a flow on. I don't think in, there'd be very few industries that would eat that amount of power. So a like-for-like replacement I think would be quite difficult. But we'd get some residual benefits from it flowing back into the New Zealand economy well part of it anyway we kind of touched on it but but what is the next step I mean what what are you what's your thought from here as to where we go as far as pushing this idea forward oh look I'm still continuing to push to reach out to government and uh and central and local government so we'll push that the provincial growth fund is is uh, is a good angle we've got some some heavy hitters in business in New Zealand that have reached out so that's good so we'll we'll keep pushing that if we can't get traction with local and central government though this is a dead duck so if you can't get those guys engaged there's also there's a desire on the part of the electricity companies but no one's going to come out before you've got something lined up so you, you have to go with them to them with hey this is the amount of energy we need and how much of a deal can you do but yeah the the big push is central and local government and getting them engaged so if, if you're listening here, government, and we know uh, we know a few of you are uh, avid readers of EV Talk or EVs and Beyond as it is now, then uh, give uh, give Nigel a call. They they really do need uh, some coordination, I guess, with with government to get this thing forward. Yeah, that's the big challenge, I, I guess. And what we were talking about in terms of getting that energy out, cynically, you could say that that solves a lot of problems. So that solves, you know, getting closer to 100% renewable in one fell swoop. And it's not a lot of money to extract it out of that part of the world. So my, my concern is that we we forget about Southland. And somebody highlighted this as, a, as, a, as an example, which was um, the Christchurch earthquakes. So they were horrific. It was all over the media for a period of time. And then most people in Auckland sort of went about their day-to-day lives and they forgot about it. Not forget, forget, but it was you know, in the back of their mind. Southland could be easily forgotten in terms of the challenge that faces them. So I, I want to make sure we keep that first and foremost and try and do something with this opportunity. If we get to the point where we can't, that that's one thing. But if we haven't tried, that's completely different. Fantastic. Look, thank you so much for talking to us today, Nigel. And uh, we hope this, uh, this project goes somewhere. We really do. Hey, I uh, really appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us again on the EVs and Beyond podcast. Do not forget to like and subscribe on whatever app you are using to listen to this. It really helps us. Also check out the new EVs and Beyond Facebook page, another step in our transition from evtalk.co.nz. If you've not caught up with our latest magazine, it is available for download free on our website now. And catch us again in two weeks' time for a chat with Steve Greenwood of Telpo's Drive EV. (laughs) 